ill pilot's plain tales. He flies east, flies north, flies west, flies undone. There were periods during the First World War when the average life of a pilot was measured in days, and their time in the air by a handful of hours, assuming of course they completed their training without killing themselves, which were about the same odds you got from spinning a coin. So anyone who volunteered to take up the challenge of climbing into a flimsy kite-like structure of wooden wire covered with painted canvas and powered by a primitive and unreliable motor that often only had two settings, on or off, was, in my mind, a hero even before they first tried to get airborne. Those gallant young men often took to the air to escape the awful conditions, the death and destruction, gas, disease and torment that was their life in the trenches. They fondly imagined that a life high above the stinking foul war below would be clean and brave, man against man in modern chivalrous combat. Perhaps that was in the mind of a 22-year-old Lance Corporal Johns, who had served in Gallipoli and then on the Macedonian front in Greece, but who was recovering from malaria in hospital. Johns was an Englishman born towards the end of the 1800s in Hartford to a modest couple. His father was a tailor and his mother the daughter of a master butcher. Christened William Earl, the Earl coming from his mother's maiden name, he had a happy upbringing, attending a local Hartford grammar school. Here he became part of the school's cadet corps, and where he excelled at rifle shooting, despite calling his time with the cadets a silly game. In later life he commented that none could guess that within a few years most of them would be doing these things in grim earnest on the war-stricken fields of Flanders, or that before the First World War was over, nearly a third of them were to die on that same battlefield. William was keen to enter the army, but when he left school in 1907, his father arranged for him to become articled as a surveyor. Completing his apprenticeship, he was appointed as a sanitary inspector in Swaffham, but despite any lingering waft his work may have left on him, he walked out with the local vicar's daughter and they eventually became married. Denied the chance of joining the regulars, William joined the Territorial Army in the King's Own Royal Regiment, the Norfolk Yeomanry. However, when war was declared on the 4th of August 1914, William left the shores of England to serve as a machine gunner alongside the Anzacs during the disastrous Gallipoli campaign. When they finally stole away from their trenches on the peninsula in the middle of the night, they left a quarter of a million dead men behind, with many more who were maimed physically or mentally. After contracting malaria during his next campaign in Salonica, one of over 63,000 men to do so, he was in hospital recovering when he had an epiphany and decided to join the Royal Flying Corps. It seemed to me, he said, 
that there was no point in dying standing in squalor if one could do so sitting down in clean air. Commissioned as a second lieutenant, Johns began his training at Number 1 School of Aeronautics at Reading and the Aerodrome at Coley Park, where he learned his trade as a pilot in a Maurice Farman shorthorn. His first posting was as a flying instructor. There are many astonishing tales of death and disaster from these times, and Johns himself had a number of spectacular crashes and forced landings from failed engines, one on his very first flight. He once wrote off three planes in three days due to engine failure and must have destroyed over ten. Had he been a German fighter pilot, that would have made him an ace. In July 1918, he was posted to number 55-day bombing squadron to fly the de Havilland DH-4 heavy bomber out of Anzlot near Nancy in France. They were nicknamed Flying Coffins because the petrol tank was between the pilot and his rear observer and a good target for enemy aircraft. He didn't last long before coming to grief whilst flying in formation on a bombing raid to Mannheim. Johns, together with his rear gunner, 2nd Lieutenant Amy, were hit by anti-aircraft fire and their fuel tank holed. Forced to drop out of formation, they were easy prey for a dozen or so German fighters and their aircraft was shot to pieces. Amy was killed and Johns had his goggles smashed by bullets before being wounded in the thigh. Eventually his engine was hit and stopped, spraying petrol vapour everywhere. Luckily the flames held off and Johns crashed in a German field passing out. When he came to, he managed to clamber out of the wreckage, but he couldn't get Amy's body out. Captured by local Germans who had witnessed the recent bombing of a Sunday school, he was given a rough time until the pilots who shot him down came to rescue him. After that, he was treated with great camaraderie, but apart from a couple of escape adventures, he remained in captivity for the rest of the war. He returned to his family on Christmas Day 1918, much to their astonishment, as he had been listed as missing, and until he walked through the door they all thought he was dead. He returned to the active list in the newly formed Royal Air Force and promoted to Flight Lieutenant, joining the Inspectorate of Recruiting in London's Covent Garden. It was here that he rejected the application of one John Hume Ross, who wanted to join the RAF as an aircraftsman. To William's amazement, higher authorities stepped in, and aircraftsman Ross, or how he is better known, Lawrence of Arabia, was permitted to join after all. But that's another story. When William's commission came to an end in 1927, he started a career that turns this story into something more than a tale of a brave but unremarkable pilot of the First World War into something rather special. Being a bit of an artist, William started making a living by selling his work to various magazines, such as the Illustrated London News. He specialised in aviation art, 
and, with a growing reputation, worked for the magazine Modern Boy, not only painting but writing a few articles. Credited as our aviation expert, soon his byline became Flying Officer John's. A few books followed, and William was invited to become the editor of a new magazine, Popular Flying. As part of the very first edition, the new editor wrote some authentic flying stories about the war and decided to create a fictional pilot whose adventures the readers could follow. The chap that William invented was called James Bigglesworth, better known as, and later to be recognised in just about every corner of the civilised world as, Biggles. Before long, a collection of the magazine articles were assembled into the first Biggles book, The Camels Are Coming, and the flying hero that so many of us know and love was properly born. Initially authored by W.E. Johns, before long William gave himself the pen name we are more familiar with by adding an honorific to become Captain W.E. Johns. Peppered with the sort of exclamations that we all mimic from time to time like Top Hole! Grand! Good Gracious! By Jove! Cripes! Infernal damnation, and such. The books were filled with the daring do that all boys of the time loved. Before long, he had taken on a few chums to share his adventures. The Honourable Algernon Lacey, a cousin, and better known as Algie. And Ginger Hebblethwaite, a runaway teenager from Yorkshire, who Biggles recruits into the team. Other characters included Lord Bertie Lissy, who flew with a hunting horn and a monocle, Tug Carrington, a boxer, Flight Sergeant Smythe, his mechanic, Colonel William Raymond of British Intelligence, and Biggles's greatest opponent, the dastardly Prussian Eric von Stalhein. Biggles starts off as a teenage fighter pilot, or scout pilot in the vernacular of the time, he joins the RFC underage, having sort of lost his birth certificate. He represented a very British hero, growing from a slightly hysterical youth, prone to practical jokes, to a calm, confident, competent leader, combining a thoroughly professional approach to flying with a gentlemanly air. Biggles progresses through both wars and beyond, being given many missions by the military and British intelligence before finally working for the Special Air Police. All told, there were to be 101 Biggles books, although the debate is still ongoing, but Captain W.E. Johns wrote others too. The demand for popular flying with Johns as editor, was heavy from the very first issue, and the magazine remained highly successful. He may have had little journalistic experience, but he had a natural flair, and in his editorials he was not only informative, but prepared to be outspoken and politically controversial. 
His writing generated some criticism and even pressure from the government, who were adopting a conciliatory approach to German rearmament. The magazine, however, established itself as a most popular aviation publication, both here and in America. The quality of the writing, the controversial content and so on, marked John's editorship. He even commissioned an article from Hermann Goering, a member of Baron von Richthofen's Flying Circus and an ace having shot down 22 aircraft. This article carried the rider. The publication of this article does not necessarily mean that we agree with Captain Goering's present political activities. We are only concerned with his career as an airman. Despite a very full life, editing, writing, broadcasting and travelling, Johns was also politically active. The international situation of the 20s and 30s was a cause of great concern to him, and the government not only wanted to reduce money to the RAF, but was even talking of disbanding it. In May 1931, Johns wrote a trenchant article about the government's air policy, entitled... Disarmament, Dementia and Economy. He was not the only one concerned. A speech was given in the House of Commons by Lieutenant Colonel Moore Brabazon, who Johns quoted, in which he said, The enemy of the Air Force is not across the Channel, it's in Whitehall. His publisher launched a sister paper to Popular Flying, called Flying at Threepence a Copy, and Johns was asked to be the editor. Sadly, his controversial stance resulted in him being called to the House of Commons and being dismissed as editors of both magazines. The start of the Second World War proved the dire prophecies of so many people, including Johns, were absolutely correct, and he found himself very much back in favour. He hoped to get back to flying, but he was now 46, so the Air Ministry appointed him as a lecturer to the Air Defence Corps, which became the Air Training Corps in 1941. During the Second World War, it was recognised what a great recruitment tool Biggles had become, and the Air Ministry asked Johns to create a female counterpart to aid recruitment to the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, and so Worrells appeared in 1941. The War Office didn't want to be left out of all this excellent recruiting methods, and so, in 1943, a commando officer, Gimlet, appeared. The effect of John's books is not to be underestimated. Many pilots of the era, myself included, albeit a little later, will tell you that their inspiration to fly started with the Biggles books of Captain W.E. Johns that they read as a small boy. After the war, Johns, who by now had left his first wife, although he continued to support her and their son, and he moved in with another lady who was to be his companion for the rest of his life. His success as a writer was by now well established, and his books, particularly the Biggles series, were being translated into many languages, even German, which sold very well and, amazingly, were widely read by German children. Only in America were the books not popular, being considered too British for their taste.
Biggles' stories were also broadcast on the BBC, but it was in Australia that Biggles on radio became a true institution. In the 1960s, Johns found himself, like Enid Blyton and other long-established writers of children's books, accused of racism, elitism and all the other isms you can think of, with his books being removed from the library shelves. A period of political correctness was about to condemn these books for using the common language of the time and draw conclusions about their authors that were neither fair nor correct. Another distasteful aspect was that it was only after his death, when he could no longer defend himself, that these attacks increased. It was on the 21st of June 1968, at 8.30 in the morning, that William stopped mid-sentence whilst writing Biggles Does Some Homework in order to make himself and his partner a cup of tea. He went upstairs to her, sat in his armchair and suffered a fatal heart attack. He died immediately. He was 75 years old. Although the name he brought into common usage is often used as a parody of times past, Captain W.E. Johns was not just an author, he was a warrior who fought well and fought bravely. With titles like Biggles Goes to War, Biggles Secret Agent, Biggles Defies the Swastika, Biggles and the Black Raider, Biggles and the Gunrunners, and Biggles Flies North, South, East and West, Captain W.E. John's writings motivated generations of boys to seek out the thrills of flying with their tales of adventure, mystery, intrigue, bravery, comradeship and fair play, all within a world populated by brave pilots and marvellous planes. What more could a youngster have wanted? If you enjoy Plain Tales, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show podcast. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com. Music by Kefi Epic Music Empire.